Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Pot of Dough Podcast. I am your host, Jessica. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with the highly prolific lighting designer, Jennifer Tipton, who is an internationally recognized lighting designer whose distinctive designs have redefined the relationship between lighting and performance. And she currently has a Broadway show opening this week, A Doll's House Part 2. Jennifer Tipton has been an important presence throughout her prolific career in dance, drama, and opera productions of all scales, and she's regarded as one of the most versatile designers working today. Best known for her work in dance, Tipton's painterly lighting evokes mood and defines and sculpts movement. Preferring a small but powerful palette of colors, she pioneered the use of white light in theater and dance. In Toila Tharp's In the Upper Room from 1986, and Fate Accompli in 1983, for instance, her strategic placement of white lights coupled with manufactured fog allowed dancers to enter and exit the performance space from upstage rather than the wings. They materialize seemingly out of nowhere only to disappear into a void, thereby reinforcing the progression of the dance as it advances and recedes, explodes and implodes. For both small theater and Broadway productions, Tipton's artistry interacts intimately with the work's physical appearance and emotional resonance. Her subtle shifting lighting for Eugene O'Neill's A Moon for the Misbegotten, produced at Long Wharf Theater in New Haven in 2005 and reproduced in the Williamstown Theater Festival in 2015, gave visual support to the play's delicate balance between vitality and deep sadness. In the final scene, the cleansing warmth of approaching dawn affirms the sense of peace and forgiveness finally achieved by the protagonist. As a committed teacher, Tipton has influenced a generation of lighting designers, and her dramatic imagination continues to push the visual boundaries of lighting design in new and exciting directions. She's designed lighting for numerous dance performances for such companies as the New York City Ballet, the American Ballet Theater, Twyla Tharp Dance and the Paul Taylor Dance Company, and for theatrical productions at such venues as St. Anne's Warehouse, the Public Theater, and the Metropolitan Opera, among many others. Since 1994, she served as an adjunct professor of lighting at the Yale University School of Drama. So that is quite an introduction and bio for you, Jennifer. We're so happy to have you today. Delighted to be here. Normally, I have a co-host, so that's why I say things like, we are... I'm speaking for two people, actually, even though I'm the only one here. All right, good. So let's start with what you're working on right now at the moment. So I understand that A Doll's House Part 2 just opened last night, which is really exciting, and you've been working with that production. Tell me about the show and what the creative process has been. Well, it's a wonderful play, and when you have good material like that, beautiful plays to work on, then uh, in some ways the the production is easily made. And in this particular production, the cast of four is really dynamite. All of them fantastic actors who are working at the top of their game and have great understanding of the characters that they're playing. So this means that everybody's been happy in this process. It has not been difficult to put it on the stage. As a matter of fact, I think we had like three, maybe even four weeks of previews. And we were finished early, so we froze the production, as you say in theater, meaning that 
we started making no changes early, which meant that the critics could begin coming early, which it's all been fairly relaxed process, which is not usual or often the opposite as you're trying to work out little knots. And there's been, in in my past history of working on new plays, but there's been a lot of rewriting. And of course, Lucas Knopf, the playwright, did do some rewriting, but not that much. So it was all in all a quite happy time. That's great. It sounds like a really effective collaboration process. You all work so well together that you finished ahead of schedule. That's rare in so many fields. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And so when you're working on a production, how do you start to get inspiration? Do you generally develop ideas on your own or do you speak to the director first and then from there a conversation begins? I sort of over my long life in theater and in lighting plays have uh, managed to have my own ideas, but knowing somehow intuitively in the end that I'm going to have to incorporate the ideas of a lot of other people, not just the the director, but the set designer and the costume designer, perhaps even the sound designer and um, what are they called? Oh, the set designer? Projections, yes. Oh, the projectionist. projection designer, yes. Oh, okay. So I have to accommodate all of these people. Mm -hmm. But I certainly began reading the play or reading the version of the play that is, if it's a new play, it of course may change and may even change drastically before I'm finished. But anyway, reading the play and forming my own ideas and trying to have strong ideas about the play that I can discuss with the director and perhaps influence the director's ideas about the play as well, certainly about the light in the play. But it's always nice to have a meeting of all of us, the entire team, so that we can throw around ideas and the sound designer can talk about the light and the set designer can talk about the costumes, etc., If I receive a model or the design and it's pretty complete and there's not much room for light or lighting equipment, then it's a little awkward. You may have to encourage the set designer to really sort of tear up places so that you can get some light in if it's really bad. Yeah. So it sounds to me like you're describing your ideal situation is when, from the very beginning, everyone who is involved is working collaboratively and is sort of open to ideas and being able to work out solutions together. Is that correct? That's the best way. Of course, it Mm -hmm. often doesn't happen that way. In fact, for Adult's House, the set designer is from London, and... We didn't meet for the longest time. We talked on the telephone, but we didn't meet. So when I saw the model, when I saw the set for the first time, it was pretty much finished. Mm -hmm. So I had little to say about it. Oh, I see. So in that scenario, when the set is pretty much set, (laughs) for lack of a better word, How do you then come in and decide, well, what colors might work with this? Or how do I also move a plot or a story forward, 
knowing that the set is already complete? I get drawings, a plan, version, and a section. So that from these two views, I can figure out the three dimensions. And therefore, I can find out where I can put lights and what they will do, how they will hit the set, how they will hit the people in the set. And I hopefully know colors of costumes and colors of scenery and therefore can choose the color that I think. For instance, in a doll's house, it has an orange carpet. And in doing the light plot, my instinct was always to put some white light somewhere. And then I kept saying, no, 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 the white light will make the orange really pop. It's never going to be anything but orange, but I want to tame that color a little bit. So I used lavender. Everywhere that my instinct was to use white, I used light lavender. And it worked beautifully. So. Oh, that's so great. So I imagine through your many years of experience, you already have these great ideas and maybe even through trial and error of what colors would work together and emphasize each other. Do you find that normally your thoughts or your intuition about how colors will work together ends up being correct? Or do you ever have to experiment a little bit with the actual set and the lights and make any changes from there? I definitely have to experiment. Experience is good as far as it goes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I always thought, as when I was young, that with experience, I would know everything in advance and it wouldn't be a problem. Well, as I've lived, there is nothing that you know for sure in advance. So everything is, you always have a little nervous stomachache. And that's one of the joys of doing what I do is that little stomachache. But hopefully there are nice situations where if you've made a mistake with color, you can correct it. Working on Broadway, it can be very expensive to correct it. So hopefully you want to be right. But interesting, when I did For Color Girls, which went to Broadway, there was the old saying that amber light is best on black skin. Well, so I had a very light amber. And of course, the quote-unquote black skin of the cast members was a huge range of of skin colors. And the amber was terrible on most of them. So I had to change it. And once again, I fell back on lavender. And it it worked beautifully. Interesting. Lavender seems to be a connector of... (laughs) Lavender has sort of all the primaries. Mm -hmm. And skin has many, many colors. No matter what color the skin is, it has many colors to make that skin. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, the primary colors in light are red, blue, and green. Mm -hmm. And red and green make amber. So it means in amber light, there's not much blue. And there's a great deal of blue in a face, the color of any face. So amber kind of deadens faces of any color. That is so fascinating. And I'm really going to think about that going forward. But let me also talk about dance. 
because obviously there's no play to read when you're doing a dance. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing a new dance, which most dances will be when you're doing them, then uh, you don't see it for a long time in a complete form. It may not be completed until just before the curtain goes up. So in a bit, a little bit, you're sort of... uh, going blindly forward, which is sort of difficult for a lighting designer. But I always ask that I see the dance before the choreographer tells me anything about it, because I want to be audience. So then I see the dance, and then if the choreographer can say, well, then the ghost comes there, and I can say, oh, I didn't see that at all, you better make that clearer if that's what you want to be. Or this happens, and... I can support that with light to help read it. But anyway, I can be the audience. I can be the first audience that the dance has. That's great. And typically, if someone is producing a new piece and given the U.S. structure of how dance is funded, a lot of choreographers don't have much time to create pieces. So I imagine that what you might see might be sort of like a studio viewing or a studio rehearsal of the choreography. In seeing that, are you able to then intuitively come up with an idea for the lighting design? I do. And sometimes it's very exciting if the dance has turned me on a lot. If if the dance has not turned me on so much, then I still have ideas about how the space works and how the colors can work with the costumes and with scenery, if there is scenery, etc., Mm -hmm. But I still have to wait until I get into the theater and put the light on the dance. And what has happened so many times with theater as well as with dance is that you see it in the theater, in the studio, and it's extremely exciting. You put it on the stage and it loses something. Still to this day, I don't know why that happens. And it may be why many choreographers eliminate most things like costumes and scenery and just put the dance on the stage or find a particular site for the dance. Right. Maybe something as closely more intimate, sort of like the studio space. Yes. Yeah. That too is also an interesting concept. I'll be thinking about how you do lose something when you move from one rehearsal setting to the stage. What might be some recent examples of how you have tried to sculpt certain movement and to highlight maybe a particular technique of dance or be able to show dancers in their best light? Well, when I first started, the quote-unquote rule was that you lit dance from the side and you lit theater from the front because theater, you have to see the faces and dance, you need to see the bodies and side light I mean, Balanchine, with all the tangle of legs and arms, would be almost invisible or impossible to see if there weren't good side light. But what I then began to learn, as I used this quote-unquote rule, for instance, Paul Taylor would say, oh, I want to see the faces. I want to see the dancers' faces. Mm -hmm. So I would begin to use much more front light. Not more front light than side light, but more than I had been using. And then what I realized with actors 
is that they look at each other a lot more than they look at the audience. So side light becomes the important light. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm also noticing a theme with your approach. Of course, there's conventional wisdom, which tells you how to begin thinking about something. But I love that you are always open to learning from each individual experience in the process itself, which is such a wise way to approach anything. True, true. But as a lighting designer, it's it's your eyes that are telling you or telling the audience, certainly, what it needs to know about the piece, whether it be dance or theater. And if you don't listen to your eyes, <laughs> as it were, and learn from them, then you shouldn't be a lighting designer. First and foremost. <laughs> that makes sense. And so I like this idea where you're talking about lighting from different angles. Have there been any experiences, whether recently or even not so recently, where you've had to really think outside of the box and try something almost experimental for maybe a certain effect that a director was going for? And what was that like? Well, what immediately comes to mind is the first time that I worked with the Worcester Group, mm. which is a group that I work with all the time now. And in fact, that's what I'm rushing off to. That's the rehearsal that I'm rushing off to. Oh, okay, great. But for them, the first piece was Brace Up. And I knew that, first of all, they were suspicious of theatrical dealings, shall I say. They wanted very much for it to be sort of real and rough. And I know that I, I'm very... Um, polished in my work. So I knew that I wanted to find a more rough and ready way to work. And so what I ended up doing was making reflectors so that the light was focused at the reflector and then down on the stage. And I started with mirrors, but they simply redirected the beam of light. Mm -hmm. So it became a white foam core reflector, which diffused the light and reflected it all over. And so in Brace Up, that was um, a way that we got a considerable amount of light. And it, for me, it sort of opened my eyes to a new tool in my toolbox. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there was another production. I even forget the name of it now. It was a longish name. And so if I try to remember, I'll remember wrong. But anyway, it moved from one theater to another, and the second theater had a ceiling that you could almost touch with your hand. And I sat trying to figure out how to light this so close. And lights start little, small. The beam is small. It gets bigger as it gets farther away. But I was almost crying and almost saying, I can't do this when I suddenly realized I'll just bounce it off these bounce cards and therefore diffuse it, and it worked perfectly. So, Oh, that's so perfect. <laughs> yeah, I always love that eureka moment when something is bothering you or a problem that needs to be solved, and finally you come up with a solution. It's such a great experience. Yes, uh, the most recent time that I was practically in tears was 
I um, redid Balanchine's Midsummer Night's Dream just recently in Paris for the Paris Opera Ballet. And I said about a year ago that I would do it. The foundation, the Balanchine Foundation asked me to do it. And I said, yes, that I would, Mm -hmm. thinking that it would be reproducing the production that they have. Well, it turned out that the scenery and costumes were by Christian Lacroix. Oh. And I found out much, much later, while we were doing it, that it was his first set. Oh, interesting. And there was no room for the lights. So I sat crying. (laughs) I would say to myself, okay, I'm just going to go do the light plot it's your job, Jennifer, just go do it. Mm-hmm. And I would go and sit down at the drafting board and say, there's no no way, no way. So I realized that, okay, you just go to Paris and you'll work it out. Mm-hmm. And first of all, they gave me no time. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it was it was quite beautiful. And it's always just like a doll's house. If if things are good and it was beautiful, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fine. So we managed to get enough time, and I managed to move things around. As I knew, the, there was not enough room for the dancers, mm-hmm. let alone the lights. Right. So once there was room for the dancers, there was room for the light, and it all worked out beautifully. Okay, great. And Monsieur Lacroix called me a goddess. Oh, <laughs> oh that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> goddess Jennifer Tipton. <laughs> so, yes, tell me a little bit, too, about your use of white light in theater and dance. And I know that you said earlier that your instinct is to use white light in general, how did you first begin pioneering this white light, and how does it influence you today? It's interesting that you call it pioneering. <laughs> I think I think that when I started lighting, certainly, the Europeans used a lot of white light, and Americans used a lot of color, which is now maybe vice versa, uh, interestingly. But interesting. First of all. In the early years, the gel color was not, they weren't tense particularly. The blues were quite dark. Everything was sort of really colorful. Mm-hmm. And it, so there it, before it changed what it was looking at, changed the color of costumes. And I felt that you needed to eliminate the color to reveal what was there. Truly, And if you had not very many lights and the lights were not very bright, as was the case in my beginning, then um, you needed to open it up and reveal. You wanted to put light on the stage and the best way was to get rid of the color. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting that you mentioned, too, the differences between European lighting versus American Currently, what might be some differences in trends that maybe you've noticed or I know we're speaking from a more general perspective, but are there any major differences right now between the two? I think still a big difference is the number of lights used. I think Europeans tend to generally use fewer lights and bigger ones. Mm 
And maybe the bigger came first. Maybe they had to use fewer because they had bigger lights because they have primarily 220 voltage and we have 110. Mm -hmm. And that means the lights are bigger. And so there could get fewer in a position in, on a pipe, for instance. And Gene Rosenthal, who was an early, light, in fact, a, the, the lighting designer for Martha Graham, among many, many other, other things, she evolved something that she called jewel lighting, which was if you light something from all angles, then it looks like the light is emanating from the person, from the actor, from the singer, from the dancer. Mm -hmm. So that idea is not part of the history of European lighting, but very much American lighting. Okay. Fascinating. And that's so fascinating about the structural differences and the volts. And that makes a lot of sense that that would drive a lot of general trends. Right. How have you seen trends change over the years in the U.S.? Or are there any trends today that choreographers are asking for, directors are asking you for more often than not? Possibly it's technology, but... It's interesting. And moving lights and, you know, lights that you can, well, the Broadway style lights that you see moving around and moving together and things like that. So uh, showy, show off. It's interesting. I was asked by Michael Utoff and when he was in Arizona at the Arizona Ballet, he wanted to do a new piece and he wanted to have moving lights. There's money on Broadway to have these things. So early on in their lives, you can use them on Broadway. But when you're using them for small companies, both theater and dance, you don't have the money, the budget to do that. So this was one of the first times that I uh, worked with moving lights. And of course, you say moving lights. They move, meaning you can turn them off and quickly focus them over here by computer. Mm -hmm. They move in that way. But they don't move following people. As a matter of fact, if you have them on while they're, you know, have them lit while they're moving, you see that they move in little bumps mm -hmm. as opposed to smoothly. Right. So trying to make the lights move, as Michael Utoff wanted, was a real eye-opener for me and clearly not possible. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Would you uh, bring on some sort of inventor or technician to design such a light? Well, there are things now. The actor, singer, dancer will wear a homing device. And so the light catches that and follows it. Okay. So there is that possibility these days. I, I don't know how expensive or inexpensive it is, but uh, yeah, it can be done. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that sounds like that would be. And I think it may have been um, invented for skaters oh. to keep follow spots on skaters. Because okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And we didn't really talk much yet about how you use lighting to evoke mood. And it seems like there would be so many ways to work with a story or the mood of a dance or the feeling of a dance. What might be some recent examples that you can speak to about how some 
practices you use to show mood or enhance a mood? It's, you know, it's all, it's all angle and color. It's an intensity. It's all the elements of light. And it's appropriate to the piece. And I don't really think about mood. I think about, you know, what the piece needs to uh, locate it somewhere, which may include time of day, depending on the piece. That's not true in most dance. Uh, because dance is very abstract. Of course, theater is very, is abstract too in its own way. So, um, you know, I, I'm trying to think of something that I've done that feels like it's real. And there's been nothing like that recently. So I don't know that I have more to say about that. Yeah. No, it makes sense. There's um, a general process whereby you use lights and specific to each piece. Mm -hmm. And we did talk a little bit about technology. Now it seems like with computers and being able to program the lights and cues and whatnot, it seems like the process is automated and very clear. How has that changed over time? And has that influenced your process over time? The automation of technology? So before computers, through the direction of my mentor, Tom Skelton, I um, learned to count cues and count cues backwards. Mm. Backwards because if you're counting forwards, you can forget how far you're going and just continue. So if you count backwards, then the electrician who's doing the levers, doing the dimmers, will know when it's going to stop. Say you have a 10-count cue, and so you 10, 9, 8, and so on. And the first time I did that, Tom said to me, oh, well, why don't you phrase it? So it was, it was my habit to have the light move with the dancers, counting backwards. And I uh, felt, you know, such closeness to the light and the movement of the light somehow. And computers came along and I said, oh, it's going to be terrible. I won't, you can't do that. Well, let me say, I find it wonderful that it's the same all the time and that it's so consistent. And if you want to phrase it, if you know, you can't work directly with the dancer, obviously, and phrase it a little bit this way today and a little bit that way tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But you can make a cue speed up a little bit and slow down a little bit in its process if you want to. Okay, that makes sense. It seems to me for peace of mind that it's nice to know that something is automated and nothing is open to human error. That's, for me, always reassuring. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's still the human error of the cue not being called in the right place. Mm -hmm. We still have it isn't like you push a button and the, the lighting happens for the whole piece. Right, yeah. Just from one button push. So there is a stage manager calling cues and they can be called in the wrong place. Yeah. But it, there's much less chance for... Mm. I can remember in the early days, my early days, when there were electricians on the levers and somebody made a mistake or something. And I said, if you're going to make a mistake, make it slowly, please. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. No. Nothing jarring. <laughs> I know, but how can you make a mistake slowly? Mm 
A mistake <laughs> is a mistake. Uh, that's so funny. <laughs> yes. I love that. So we are nearing the end of our interview here, and we've covered quite a lot, and I have learned so much. And as I mentioned to you actually before the interview, lighting is something that I don't feel like I'm acutely aware of when I'm watching a performance. When I leave, for example, I'm not talking to my friends and saying, oh, that lighting cue during that one part was so special. But it definitely affects me, and it does affect my overall mood and feeling of the dance. And I hope this interview also helps our listeners and dance audiences think differently about light as well. Well, I have said that 99% of the audience doesn't notice the light, but yeah. 100% is affected by it. Absolutely. In, in ways that we'll never know. But I guess that's also dance in general. When I'm watching a dance performance and I start getting goosebumps or something affects me emotionally and I don't even know why. I can't actually tell someone why that made me feel a certain way, but it did. And lighting certainly, of course, highlights all of that. So what, generally speaking, do you try to impart to your students at Yale? I mean, obviously you're giving them a lot of technical knowledge about lighting, but what is your ultimate hope to inspire them to do? To do it the way they do it, not the way I do it. Mm. For the first part of their time there, I teach them my way of doing it. And then for the rest of the time, I encourage them to do it their way. That's really great. And that is the creative process. Yes, that's what I think. Any other uh, lasting words or anything else you'd like to talk about? I don't think so. I think we've covered a great deal and well. So it's good. Thank Thank you. you so much, Jennifer. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. And I look forward to seeing your Broadway production. Oh, yes. See that. I think it's really terrific. But I've enjoyed talking to you and thank you for the opportunity. Great.